lessons as we look at this that might help us wrap up our theme as we as we conclude our discipleship uh, lessons here. There's a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, as we're diving into this lesson, obviously in any kind of teaching, right, you can't touch everything. You can't like uh, turn over every stone that could possibly relate to this topic. And so I just want to offer that caveat because there's a lot to being a disciple that I'm not going to talk about today, but I thought that was worth uh, covering my bases on. So in Mark chapter 10, uh, this is an interaction that Jesus has with a young wealthy man. Um, and I think it serves not only as a warning uh, against loving the things of this world more than God. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. That's certainly it. But I think it also kind of serves as a, as a figure or maybe even uh, an allusion to kind of the journey that just any disciple kind of undergoes, the sequence that kind of occurs in this text. First, we see this young man approaching Jesus, and he has an interaction with him. And then when he goes on his way, we see kind of the ripple effects that that even has with the disciples remaining with Jesus. And so I think this is really a figure of uh, really all of our journeys in, sort of a, in, a, in a sort of way with Jesus. And so I want to look at this uh, through the lens of our theme, through discipleship. But specifically, I want us to see um, different kind of attitudes, or you might phrase it this way, different hearts represented in this text. All right, so let's look at Mark chapter 10. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn there like me. Uh, and let's read this text again with an eye towards the different kind of attitudes or hearts that are presented as this text rolls on. Um, I don't want to read the whole thing. We'll work our way section by section through this. So beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think this is the first sort of attitude or heart that we see manifested that we're going to talk about today is uh, this heart of seeking. All of us in this room, and I know some of you better than others, all of us in this room relate to this one, right? Like, if you are a disciple, then you are a seeker. Like, they're, they're synonyms, right? Now, to be a disciple means you found the one you should learn from, right? That's Jesus. But if you are a disciple, that means you've sought that out, right? Um, and so some of us in this room may still be seekers, right? Like, we... We're still trying to figure out if Jesus is the one that we should be following. But some of us have found him. But all of us have, are seekers. And if you've fallen away from the Lord, maybe you've been less of a seeker lately. You should be a seeker. And at some point you have been a seeker, right? This man, uh, this young man, proves that he's a seeker, right? Um, this, he's a, he has a seeking heart. And I think this is really representative of everybody's start, right? If you're going to be involved with God... You have to be like this young, wealthy guy. You have to seek something, right? You have to seek him out. And so it says he runs up and he kneels before Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do? I want to focus in on sort of the details of this man's approaching Jesus. Um, first of all, he, I find it interesting that he's running. He's not walking. I don't know if that's because Jesus is like on the cusp of being like out of range, like because he's about to go on a journey or if he's going to be like disappearing 
from the public eye for a while or what, but he is running to get to Jesus. Right? Uh, I think uh, we have a lot to learn from this part of this guy's story is that he's a seeker, but there's an urgency about his seeking. I think I've often been tempted to, to be a seeker, but in a very passive, kind of lazy, laissez-faire sort of way. Like, I'll get to it when I get to it. I want to get there. But, like, there's no real sense of, like, pressing need, right? A good lesson that we see from this guy is if we really want to be disciples, we have to seek, and we need to seek with a sense of urgency. He's running up to Jesus, but that's not where it stops here. It says uh, that Jesus is about to go on a journey, right? Like, there's one sense in which it's like, this guy is coming at maybe the last possible moment he has to come. I don't know that for sure, but maybe Jesus is, he doesn't know if Jesus is ever going to be in this area again. And so he wants to catch him before he leaves. And so again, this is illustrating this sense of urgency and sense of zeal that he has for, for coming to Jesus. But also notice that when he gets there, when he arrives in front of Jesus, he kneels before him. And he says, good teacher. Right. Uh, a little bit of this is lost on me because I think, I don't know, just we lose some nuance in English, you know, through all the translations that come along. But it, it seems like uh, I think James's translation said even good master, master teacher is kind of the idea here, the authority that Jesus has. But also this idea of good. I read this and I, I wrote down the quotation because I am not uh, academic enough to pursue all of the avenues with which I would need to come up with this quotation myself, but I read this. There is no instance in the whole Talmud of a rabbi being addressed as good master. And apparently good, this Jewish concept of good in this day, really meant like, like of God. Um, and so nobody would say good teacher, good teacher, because that was kind of a taboo thing, because only God is good, right? And so this guy not only comes kneeling, but he re reveals why he's kneeling, because he sees Jesus as being of God. He's not just good in the English sense of good. He's holy. He is divine, right? So he's a good master. He's God, right? So we see a sense of urgency in this seeker. We also see a sense of authority, that he respects, like he has a submission or a humility before the one greater than him. And so I think at the beginning of this story of this man approaching Jesus, we see that he's a seeker. We see that he's urgent about it, he's zealous for it, and that he's ready to submit to the authority right, of Jesus. So really, we're witnessing a seeker who is finally finding the one who he's seeking. Right? I mean, for someone to be interested in spiritual things and to arrive at concluding that someone is good teacher means that he's like found who he needs, right? Um, and that really is, in a nutshell, like discipleship or uh, summarized. We all are seekers. We're looking for the one who we believe that can answer our questions and provide us a way forward. And for those of us in this room that are Christians, that we've settled on Jesus being that one. He's the one that provides life answers most abundantly. He's the one that gives us the, 
the, the answers that make the most sense and that seem authoritative and, and move us forward in the most uh, uh, beneficial and truthful way. And that's what this guy's doing. He's coming up to him and he's saying, good teacher. And so now that he's seen the authority of Jesus, now that he uh, has found the one he's seeking out urgently, he has like the best question that he could have for this guy. And he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? I can't imagine if you get one question with Jesus asking a more appropriate, more useful question than that one. You know, there's a lot of questions I would want to ask, like, you know, uh, how does uh, a black hole work? You know, that might be a question some of us ask, right? Like Richard would ask that question. Like, explain to me, you know, is it the string theory? Is it the quant? Like, how does all this jive, right? Some of us might ask uh, philosophical questions, right? We might say, what is good? Right? People have asked Jesus that question before. Uh, what is truth? We might say that. You know, there's any number of questions we could come up with. But this guy asks, really, the heart of it all, what do I need to do to have eternal life? It's really the most actionable of questions. It's personable, or personal, sorry. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Right? So we see a seeker who's urgent, he's zealous, he respects the authority of Jesus as being one from God, and he asks the best question possible. I think this is an illustration of where everybody needs to start. The only way that you end up with eternal life is to start the way this guy starts. You're seeking, you have a sense of urgency about it, you come to Jesus acknowledging he's the one of God and he can answer your questions. And this is the question you need to ask. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Unfortunately for this young man, this is not the end of his interaction with Jesus. Um, so as we look at this, I want us to keep looking at, this is going to kind of be the format. We're going to notice some attitude or heart, so to speak. And we're going to see why that is. We're going to see uh, why that matters to me. But I also want to make some applications of it. And so we're witnessing a seeker finding the one whom he's been seeking. This is how we all must start in our discipleship. We need to seek God with urgency and intensity. And anyone who is, was, or will be a Christian is going to mimic this. Right? You mimic kind of this unfolding of this scene here. All right. So we talked about having a seeking heart. That's just kind of the introduction, right? Well, what happens next in this this uh, account for us in verse 18 Jesus actually responds to him he says why do you call me good why do you call me good see Jesus is acknowledging that this is not what you call people right this is a, a term for God there's a concept here that's divine so he's saying why do you call me that you know you need to reflect on what you're saying here no one is good except God alone well you know the commandments don't murder don't commit adultery don't steal don't bear false witness don't defraud and honor your father and your mother. Jesus, of course, is referencing the commandments of the, the, the Mosaic law, the thing that Moses would have brought down from Sinai. Here you go. You know this stuff. It's been around a long time. This is of God. Right? Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. What we're learning about this young wealthy guy, who we actually haven't seen as being wealthy yet in the text, uh, he's sincere. You know, he comes to Jesus like seeking, he's urgent, and all that stuff we talked about. 
But he's not like, he's not disingenuous in his seeking. You know, it's not like lip service seeking. He's actually been doing what he's known to do up to this point. You know, uh, in my life, I look at a lot of times where I'm kind of walking two lines, right? Like I'm sort of spiritual, but mostly just kind of me, right? And doing my thing. And so I ask questions like this guy asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life or be closer to God or however you want to phrase it? But I'm kind of talking out of one side of my mouth, right? Because even though I'll claim to like not really know the path forward, the things I do know, I'm still not really doing them, right? Like maybe some, like some part of me knows like, well, I should tell the truth instead of lying. But I still lie because I don't really know if I want to follow Jesus yet. This guy's not like that. What he knows to do, he's been doing. And now he wants to know more. What about eternal life? Like, can you be the one that sheds more light on this for me? Can you paint a clearer path forward than I know up to this point? Right? It's kind of what he's asking because apparently he knows the laws and he's been keeping them. This guy is very sincere in his effort to find the path forward, to find God, which is not something I've always been able to like claim about myself. You know, I'm interested in path forward, but I'm not even doing what I know I'm supposed to do. As little as that may be, right? You and I need to learn from this guy, the positive example that he has, that not only is he seeking, but he's sincere in that. He does what he knows to do, right? He's been keeping these commandments. What we need to uh, see in this as well is... Seeking is kind of like an intellectual thing. There's some, there's some action involved. Like he goes, he runs to Jesus, he kneels down. Those are actions that are fueled by kind of a mentality that he has. That he needs answers, right? He needs to know the truth. But what he proves in his sincerity is that he's also willing to do hard things, right? Like traveling to see Jesus is, is kind of hard, but that's not like an everyday thing. That's like a... Let me go do this once. Let me go find this guy this one time. It's like every day he's having to run and find Jesus before he sets out on a trip. But every day he was having to not kill people and not sleep around, right? And every day he was like having to tell the truth. And every day he was having to not cheat people and he was having to honor his father and mother. And so we see that his seeking is sincere because he's willing to allow his actions to be molded by what he knows, right? Um, and so we need to realize that as this guy was willing to do godly, pious, faithful things, he's an example to us that we need to be willing to not just ask questions, hey, God, give me answers to this stuff, but be willing to take action when we do know something, right? And so as disciples, like, we're not going to be much in the way of a disciple if we stop here. Like, oh, I just heap up a bunch of knowledge about... God and eternal life and the way forward. If I'm not willing to do what this guy does and say, I've done all that. Like I'm doing everything I'm learning, I'm putting into action. Right? But yet again, unfortunately, this isn't where this man's um, narrative or his account stops, or his story. He's even sincere in his disappointment. <laughs> You know, so Jesus ends up telling him this stuff, and he says, hey, I've done all that from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, this is a key phrase, I think, in this story, loved him. And he says to him, 
You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I think it would be unfair and unrealistic and dishonest to say that we don't have disappointments in the commandments of God. Like when I hear God say, hey, don't lust, like sometimes more than others, that's a disappointment to me because it would be really nice to be able to do that, right? Or, hey, you can sell all your possessions. That is a, that's a disappointing thing to hear sometimes. But some of us, we do better than others with this. And even the best of us at times will be disappointed by these types of commandments, right? Like it's just striking us at the wrong time, so to speak. It's hitting us in a difficult moment. We're weak emotionally or we're tired or we're spiritually drained or whatever. Like there are times where we're disappointed that we're having to do something, right? Because it's hard. Like we can be disappointed by that. I think we need to move past that, right? And the story of this man is is sad because he doesn't push through that as we ought to. But I think there's a sincerity involved with like the account actually saying he's disheartened. It must have been noticeable. You know, it must have been like a known thing. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but the disciples that actually stick with Jesus, so like they're with Jesus, they're about to go on this journey with Jesus. This guy runs up, has this exchange with him, ends up leaving saddened. Well, these guys all saw this whole exchange occur, and they're going to be like, wait, we're discouraged because he walked away sad. So it was obviously noticeable that he's disappointed at like the command here, right? He's being sincere. He's not being a hypocrite. He's not putting up a facade about his disappointment. He's sincerely disappointed, and he shows that, right? So I would say that there is actually a good side of his sincerity in this and that he's willing to do what he knows, and when he's challenged beyond what he's ready to do, he's still sincere in showing and expressing his disappointment. But the negative side of this for him is not his sincerity, but rather that um, he's selfish. You know, we can be sincere um, even in our disappointments when the Lord challenges us and stay with Jesus regardless. We don't have to make the mistake this guy had. He was disappointed, but what fueled his uh, actions in the disappointment in being saddened was not faith. It was Self. Um, look at what happens here. Verse 22, he's disheartened by the saying, right? He's, he's sincerely disheartened. He goes away. He goes away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff, right? This is the challenge. I think oftentimes in my mind, and maybe you're like this as well, sincerity is like the highest quality. For someone to not be hypocritical, to be who they are, authentic is a word that we like to throw around, to be sincere is like of the highest order. If you can attain that, the rest will fall in place. But this story is showing us the guy had great questions, he was sincere, he was willing to do things, but when it got a little too hard, he was still sincere, he didn't mask his sadness, but he didn't push through. 
And so what this is telling me is sincerity is a key cog in my discipleship, right? But it's not like the soul or the pinnacle of my character, right? It's a part of who I am. I need to be authentic. I need to be not a hypocrite. I need to be sincere. But I also need to, to root out selfishness. You know, selfishness is the thing in verse 22 that ends up ruining his seeking heart and his sincere heart is because he likes his stuff. He doesn't want to sell and follow Jesus because he has a lot of good stuff, right? He's got good qualities, but any fruit that those qualities may have borne in his life is ruined by his selfishness. So the application I think is pretty plain for us is all of us are seekers. And hopefully all of us have approached Jesus realizing that he really is the only good teacher. And we've, uh, we have a sense of urgency in seeking him. And we come to him with this same question. You know, what do I need to have, do to inherit eternal life? And hopefully things we've been learning along the way we've been doing like this young wealthy guy. But when Jesus out of love is willing to share with us the thing we're still lacking... We need to be ready to root out the selfishness that may try to prevent us from moving forward. You know, this one thing is a really personal thing. Um, you know, if someone else had come up to Jesus with the same question, I don't imagine their one thing would have been the same as this guy's one thing. He was wealthy. He loved his stuff and he had a lot of it. So Jesus tells him, look, your one thing is you need to get rid of this stuff and come back and follow me. Because your treasure needs to be in heaven, right? That's what he says. Maybe your one thing is you're not as wealthy, you don't love your stuff as much, and so maybe he tells you, hey, you need to stop sleeping around, right? And then come and follow me. Or maybe he tells you, hey, like you're kind of a liar. You're, you don't ever bear to like true witness. You're known as a hypocrite. Like you need to like go back, clear up some lies you've made wrong, you've uh, conjured up, come clean, and then come and follow me. Whatever that one thing is, like Jesus out of love, when we ask, hey, what do I need for eternal, what do I need to do for eternal life? He is willing to point out that thing to us. But what will ruin the request is any selfishness that's in my heart. Because that's going to keep me from heeding what Jesus says is my one thing. There's a, there's a passage in Matthew 6. This is the only verse... Uh, that I have planned for us to go to outside of Mark 10. So if you just want to flip there real quick, just know that we're going to come back to Mark 10 and we'll just be there the rest of the time. Um, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says this. I'm sure many of us are familiar with it. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, cannot serve God in money. Now, this particular verse relates specifically to what this guy's struggling with. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6. And it sounds like it fits perfectly the struggle of this guy. Jesus is good master, right? Good teacher. But when it comes down to his stuff, his money, his wealth, or good master, verse 22 tells us the one he chooses. He chooses the money. You know why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to make it so you can't serve both of us. It's one or the other. Right? 
selfishness ruined this guy's sincerity and his and his seeking. So if you're interested in eternal life, if you're seeking and you're urgent and you're sincere, you have to root out selfishness. You have to root out that thing in you that is going to keep uh, a wedge between you and Jesus. All of us have one or two or a handful of things that are sort of untouchable in our hearts. It's like if Jesus or God challenges this thing, it's going to be really an uphill battle. I don't even know necessarily what those are for Kirby. Like that's how personal these things are. That's my wife, and I'm not even sure what those things are for her. She's She and God are probably the only two that know what those things are, right? They're really deep. They're really core to us. But when you come to God with this question, what do I need to have eternal life? He's going to hit those. Those things in your heart that are keeping you from him, he's going to say, look, I'm going to challenge you on this. And are you going to be selfish or are you going to keep seeking? Unfortunately for this guy, he's selfish and he walks away. We don't know the rest of his story. It's not recorded for us in the Gospels. Maybe later he comes around. I I like to be optimistic and think that he does. Um, But at this juncture, we're just sad that he walks away. But look at the effect that this has on other disciples. So we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. So we're going to move away from talking about the young man. And we're going to talk more about the disciples that are with Jesus up into this juncture for the last couple bits here. So for those of us that are seeking, this is kind of a portrait of like, the journey of a disciple, right? You start seeking, you're urgent, you ask the big question, you come to Jesus, you submit to his authority, you're like, you're kneeling, he's challenging you, you're saying, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, and then you have that first big obstacle, right? Like, ah, this part's, it's getting real now, it's getting hard. Well, look at the effect that that moment can have on other people, right? If you fail in that moment, You're going to affect people probably similarly to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is not apologizing. He's doubling down on the truth here, right? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Some of us may have been the wealthy man, the young man that's wealthy in this story, and affected other disciples in this way. Oh no, they fell away, like they're not going to do it. I don't know if anyone, like this is kind of causing doubt in my heart, and I don't know, like maybe you've been the person that has caused doubt. Or maybe you've been on the sidelines watching people go through this and leave Jesus because they're not willing to do what's hard. And it's causing doubt in your discipleship. Well, they were great. They had an honest heart. He was seeking. He seemed serious about it. And now he's gone his own way. Can anyone do this? Is this even possible? That's what they're asking. So I think this is representative of the journey of a disciple when you encounter a doubting heart right like all of us have seeking hearts we should maintain that but sometimes we have selfish hearts and we have to push through that and then sometimes we have a doubting heart we get to these places where we say i just don't know if it's possible right 
That's essentially what the disciples all are saying. I just don't know if it's possible. Can anyone even be saved? Because they witnessed a young man asking the right questions, who had seemed to have the right motives. He came a long way to just to get an answer, and yet he wasn't willing to do it. How discouraging that is. Um, you know, you may have the same heart full of doubt, uh, kind of like these disciples did when the difficult teaching of Jesus sinks in, you may have doubts arise. Like, wow, I didn't know that he actually meant that, right? Or, man, I didn't know it was going to be this intense. You know, we have these thoughts when we listen to Jesus' teaching because he says hard stuff. Um, or maybe you have like a heart full of doubt when you watch other people leave Jesus, right? So the first one is mostly just you and Jesus, hard teaching that brings doubt in your mind. Or experientially, when you see other people leaving, you start to doubt. What do you do in those moments? I've had them. I mean, surely you guys, if you're a disciple, surely you've experienced moments of like doubting, either from the teaching of Jesus or seeing other people just fall away and give up. What do you do in those moments? I think the text shows us what you should do. Verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished and said, these are the disciples, right? They said to him, they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? I think that's our answer. I think in those moments as a disciple where you start to doubt, I think you have to copy them and you have to tell Jesus you doubt. Um, now, I don't have Jesus like, in the other room about to go on a journey that you can like literally walk up to him and say, Hey Jesus, starting to doubt here. Who can really be saved? He's not around in that sense, but he's around, right? We know that God listens to our prayers. We know that Jesus uh, can mediate and he, and he gives us so much help uh, in our prayer life. What's to stop us from telling God, God, I'm, I'm doubting right now. You know, I'm wondering who can even be saved because I saw this person fall away. Or today I was reflecting on the teaching of Jesus and it just seems insurmountable. It seems too hard. Um, I'm doubting. You know what Jesus does when they ask that question? He looks at them and he says, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In those moments, one thing that I, I'll share with you that might help you move through the doubt. I think you should express that to God. But one core truth that God is going to tell you in those moments is, well, yeah, if it's just you, it would be. If it was just you as a rich person or just you as a disciple doing this on your own, it would be impossible. And you would be right to say, then who could be saved? You know what? You'd be right to ask, and you know what the right answer would be? Nobody. But the point that Jesus is making, as long as you're with God... It is possible. It may seem impossible. It's going to be really hard. But know that God makes impossibilities possibilities. Right? And that's really the young wealthy guy's mistake is he's selfish and it drives him away and it negatively influences the disciples. But in all of this, the factor that seems to be forgotten is you're a disciple to Jesus, the good teacher of God. And as soon as you involve God, impossible things become possible. And so in moments of doubt, 
you just need to realize that, well, if I was on my own, this would be something to worry about. Right? This would be something to be concerned of, but God is with me. And lastly, in this text, uh, here's we wrap up time-wise. Jesus' encouragement with, all, with, all, uh, with God, all things are possible, ends up producing, I believe in this text, um, a resolute heart among the disciples. So we move in this text, we see a seeking heart, we see selfishness derail that. But if you can push through the selfishness, you may even experience doubts where like, man, this is really hard. Like I'm fighting the one thing I still lack. I'm seeing other people fight that and fall away. And I'm starting to doubt if anyone can actually do it. Well, then when you express that doubt to Jesus, remember the truth of God's involvement making impossibilities possible. Then it produces what we see in this text here in verse 28. Peter speaks up. Go figure, right? Peter speaking up. Shocker there. And he says, see, we've left everything and followed you for a long time. And this may still be sort of a right way to read this. I assume Peter was being Peter and he's kind of making this outlandish statement of like bold faith that if you didn't read ahead, you just kind of assume Jesus would be like, now, Peter, let's not, you know, get ahead of ourselves here. And, you know, this is almost seems like the moment that he starts sinking in the water, so to speak. Right. Like big moment of faith, but kind of shallow. But what actually happens here is he says this. Jesus doesn't refute it. Jesus just says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses brothers sisters and mothers and children and lands but look what it comes with persecutions and in the age to come and this is what the guy asked about right how do i get eternal life and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first Jesus doesn't refute Peter in any of the accounts. Like I looked at the Luke 18 account, the Matthew whatever account, I can't remember the chapter, and the Mark 10 account. None of them involve Jesus rebuking or contradicting Peter's statement. So what I'm thinking is happening here is Peter is making a claim, a statement of truth. We have done that. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, yeah, and people that do that get this. And what do people that do that get at the end and the age to come? It's the thing that the rich young ruler came asking about, right? I think Peter's expressing a resolution here. Who then can be saved? Well, with God, all things are possible. Well, then we've left everything and we followed you. Well, in so doing, Jesus promised his him, promises him in the age to come. He, Peter, will have eternal life. This is really the portrait of all of us. We seek, we fight selfishness, we fight doubts. But for those of us who are going to have eternal life, we come out on the other side of those things with resolution. That we will give up whatever to follow Jesus. And hopefully it's not we will... We can say like Peter, I have done that. I have given up, as he says, everything, and I've followed you. So if you want to find eternal life, you have to be the kind of a disciple that doesn't stop at seeking. You have to be the kind of disciple that isn't derailed by selfishness. You have to be the kind of disciple that doubt doesn't stifle you. 
You have to be the kind of disciple that pushes through all of these, these kind of middle selfishness doubts and gets to this resolution. And it doesn't mean that you do that once and you're golden. You're, you're going to be like continually kind of doing this, right? You're going to be going, I'm resolved. And then a little while later, you're like, well, I really wish I had my stuff again. Well, maybe, can I really even do this? I'm resolved. Like, it's a constant pattern in our lives. But we see that if we can get to the place Peter's in, God promises. Jesus says, in the age to come, someone like Peter is going to have eternal life. Does your conviction and resolution mean that you figured it all out? No. I, in the immediate text, verse 32 Jesus is walking with them, I assume, on this journey that the young man tried to catch him before he went on. And he's walking, and they're amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was to happen. And so, like, Peter's resolved. I've left everything and followed you. But he still didn't have any, really, any even practical answers to what was next. He didn't understand Jesus was going to die the way he was. He didn't really get that plan. In fact, it says he's still even afraid. Like as they travel along, like he's still like uncertain to some level. So this tells me that this resolution doesn't have to come with all the answers. Just that I know who the good teacher is. And I know he provides eternal life if I can give up everything and follow him. And so that's the model for us. So all year we've been talking about this. I probably haven't said anything from Mark 10 that is new, seeing as how we've been talking about this stuff all year. The reason I wanted to talk about this is it's a good synopsis of everything we've talked about. It is like, in a nutshell, what discipleship is, is this account. Um, so if you are seeking eternal life, if you're still in stage one and you're asking, where do I get that? You have to come to Jesus. That involves a lot of things. It involves repentance. It involves baptism. It involves like clinging to the teaching of the apostles and of Jesus. It involves fellowship. With, I mean, it involves a lot of things, but just know that's the start. you got to say, what does Jesus want? You have to come with sincerity. You have to come unselfishly or at least prepare to become unselfish. Right? And you have to... Uh, Acknowledge doubts are going to arise. In fact, they're expected, but you need to let Jesus know about them and remember the truth that God makes impossible things possible. And finally, Jesus gives you the strength to carry on and so resolve to do so. In a nutshell, that's what it's all about. So if there's anyone this afternoon that has like some immediate thing like, oh, I need to repent of this or I need to be baptized or something like that we can help you with right now, Certainly, while we're singing the song that Stephen's going to lead us in, let somebody know about that. This is your time to, to be motivated to make those changes. Use the encouragement of the people around you to have the courage to actually make a change that you know you need to make a change. But certainly, uh, this is not the only time you can make a change. It's kind of traditional to offer some sort of invitation in a church setting at the end of a lesson. But... It's not like the only right time that you can make a change in your life. So if it comes tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever, phones exist, email exists, all those things. Just make those changes. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you for listening.